Hey there, everybody. I'm David Bruner, Director of Discipleship at Paley Presbyterian Church. You are listening to a podcast or watching a video of the second episode of our series called Until the End of the World, Heaven, Hell, and the Possibility of Universal Salvation. I'm so glad you've decided to join us. I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. It was a blast to participate in. In this week's episode, we do three things. We discuss some scripture, particularly Matthew 25 and its sobering parable of the sheep and the goats. We take a look at our interlocutor for this week, a man named Augustine of Hippo, who lived in North Africa in the 300s and 400s. You may never have heard of him. He's one of the most influential Christian theologians of all time, uh, a seminal figure in the history of the church. And in the last part of our episode, we take a look at seven aspects of his views on salvation, on heaven and hell. He's pretty stark and sobering. Not everyone finds him palatable, but I think he's worth wrestling with and learning from in our journey as we reflect on these topics. I hope you get a lot out of it. It's never too late to jump in. If you want to join us on Zoom, we meet on Wednesdays at 7 o'clock. Visit paleyprez.org backslash adults for recommended reading and to find the Zoom link. If you've got questions or you just want to continue the dialogue, by all means, reach out. Drop me a line at david.bruner at paoliprez.org. Thanks and bless you. Okay, so I'll give a very quick recap um, and then we can dive into talking about the Bible. So as I said before, as all of you know, we're in um, week two of Until the End of the World. So um, this is a course that looks at different Christian views about heaven, hell, and what happens after we die. Um, And in particular, we're looking at the diversity of Christian views about heaven, hell, and what happens after we die. So um, those who study the Christian tradition are often surprised to find out that the tradition is actually diverse, that there's more than one point of view, that there's not just one story about what happens after after we die, when all things wrap up. And so that's what we're going to spend the next uh, four weeks looking at. So last week, I laid out four different views on heaven and hell. Um, We are going to look at um, the traditional view, a.k.a. eternal conscious torment. We're going to look at its opposite number, universalism or universal salvation, the idea that everyone will be saved in the end. We're going to look at a third view, which Hunsinger calls annihilationism. Um, And then we'll look at a fourth view called agnosticism. So these are sort of four different views that have similarities and differences between them. We're in week two. um, So we're going to spend one week, weeks two, three, four, and five, looking at these four different views. So today we are jumping into the deep end of the pool and looking at the traditional traditional view. We're looking at the so-called eternal conscious torment view. I don't, I don't have a ton of disclaimers about this. It tends to speak for itself. I will say it's strong stuff. Um, it's strong stuff. Um, it uh, may seem unpalatable to you or unfamiliar or something that you've only heard expressed as like, well, those crazy people over there believe this, but we over here believe something different. Um, that's okay. Um, it's, it is a view that I think um, is worth 
investing time to understand, even if we disagree with it. Um, and certainly, when you learn a little bit more about Augustine of Hippo and why he held the view he held, um, I think his views become a little bit more um, softened in their severity. So um, where I want to begin, um, despite my love of theology proper and the deep love I have for Augustine, I don't want to start with him. I want to begin by starting about the starting with the Bible. So um, there were several scripture readings I suggested, and I know some of you were able to take a look at more than one of those, which is fantastic. Um, the one I want to begin by taking a look at is from Matthew 25. So if you've got a Bible um, or you have a phone or a computer, you can open up the app on your phone or your computer to take a look at this. So we're going to look at Matthew 25. Um, I'm just going to read this aloud. So this is Matthew 25, beginning with verse 31 and continuing on to the end of the chapter at verse 46. Just listen to what, what Matthew has to say. So this is Jesus speaking. He says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate peoples from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So that's a heck of a passage. It may be familiar to many of you, others may be hearing it for the first time. Um, I wanna ask what, what strikes you about that passage, um, especially as it pertains to the theme of this class. So what jumps out at you about it? Um. I was just thinking it makes it seem like it's impossible to get to heaven because, I mean, nobody, I don't think many of us have always done the right thing and helped everybody and done exactly what we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Every opportunity we've had, I'm speaking for myself at least. <laughs> <laughs> and for others here, I trust, yeah. Yes. 
yeah, it's a, it's a very convicting passage, isn't it? Right. And, um, certainly I'm, I'm right there with you, right. That there have been times in my life when I've, I have served Jesus in that disguise of the poor and marginalized. And there have been a lot of times when I haven't. Um, and this passage gives us a lot of our responsibility and our accountability before God, but not a lot of grace. Um, I'm also looking at a note here and it's, has to do with what you practiced. So is it works? Yeah. You know, or is it works or not works that get yeah. you into heaven? <laughs> so th this is, that's a very insightful question, Gail. So this is characteristic of Matthew. So um, Luke is the gospel. Every gospel has its unique emphases. And when you study them in detail, this is something you see. So Mark is the gospel of the cross. Luke is the gospel of the poor. Um, and Matthew is really a gospel with a heavy emphasis on discipleship, on actually following Jesus, on obedience, and on living a Christ-shaped life. And there are points in, in Matthew, and this is one of them, where it does seem to come into some tension with other things you see in the four gospels and also with things that Paul says. So one of the, ch there is a challenge for us. I, as a Protestant, I certainly believe that salvation is by grace and not by works. I would never simply say to someone, you know, go serve the poor or God will judge you by your works and you'll go to hell. But, you know, how do we hear this in a grace-filled way while also not simply dismissing its message? It, it's, it's a challenging question of interpretation. The one thing that God seems to know, who the sheep are and who the goats are. Yep. We certainly can't tell. I mean, we're <laughs> not, not to, we cannot judge. Mm -hmm. that, that's also very true, right? That, that. Jesus is the one on the throne on the last day and it ain't us, right? That's very important. I'm relieved because it doesn't mention predestination. <laughs> I'll go to it right, right to the, right to sure. the heart. Right, yeah, go right like, to the-, the We big. have control, like we're not doing, you know. Sure, the, right. The, it's just Jesus' words, uh, you know, would feed the poor, you know, and that's, and, but really that's what, what defines a Christian, not just what his, his, you know, with his, what his religion is, but what his actions are on earth. Sure. Uh, help to define what a Christian is. And you're, you know, so um, I'd love to hear, to read that and not have to bring up the idea of predestination, even though it might still exist. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I can understand that, right? That like the, so these discussions about salvation, heaven and hell, and th then you get into conversations about grace and works and faith and free will and all of this stuff, and it can get really heady. And in some ways, a passage like this just recalls us to the very simple things that we're called to do, period, right? It's like, if you're, if you're not sure what to do, just go serve the poor, right? Or visit someone who's in prison or go to the hospital and visit someone who's sick, right? <laughs> these are good things to do, no matter what. That's helpful advice, to be sure. Um, other thoughts or comments on this passage as it pertains to our theme? I, I was really... Uh, I just love the 
very last verse where it's uh, eternal. It's either eternal punishment or everlasting life. It, it, it doesn't, you don't get there, you know, you, you don't have a, a halfway there that, okay, maybe I'll get punished for a while and then I'll be okay. It's, yeah. it's, it's it, it's one or the other. Right. Yeah. So this is one of those passages that, um, and Hunsinger talks about this, right? So this passage in Matthew gets elevated to a place of central importance for the subsequent Christian tradition concerning heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. Because it's, you know, it speaks very clearly and authoritatively about a final judgment. And it speaks very clearly and authoritatively about a gr- two groups and they're, you know, photo negatives of each other. They're mirror images of each other. You got the goats, the sheep on your right hand and the goats on your left hand. By the way, Ro, you were the one last week that said someone had talked about like God is on your right hand and the devil's on your left hand. I bet you nine, nine, nine times out of 10, that's, this is where this comes from. <laughs> someone's, someone's trying to say, well, this is what it says in Matthew 25. So if you're left-handed, you're probably closer to the devil and that's bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's all kinds of problems arise from bad biblical interpretation. Anyway, I think the, the, presence of two different groups of people who are whose fate is are mirror images of one another you know it, it, eternal heaven for one group and eternal fire for the other is particularly striking so and as we'll see in a little bit kind of the foundation the the first big point associated with the traditional view about hell is that there's, hey, there's two groups of people and there's only two, right? You're either going to heaven or hell and that's it. And if you want to make that sort of claim, you would find grounds for it here in the Gospel of Matthew. It's it's challenging to me. I have preached on this passage a lot and there, there is a lot of good news in this passage having to do with the hidden presence of Jesus among the vulnerable and marginalized. Right. I think part of what's really astounding about this passage is, you know, it's like the judgment of Jesus. Jesus is on the throne judging people. But before then, he was present in the poor, the hungry, the lonely, you name it. Right. And I often gravitate towards those themes. But there are these other themes about divine judgment that are very challenging, but are undoubtedly there. And I guess I, I think it's helpful for us to even if we don't like it or we're not sure what to make of it i think it's helpful just to be honest and say, and own it and say okay this is part of this passage maybe we don't know what to do with it or we don't like it and that's okay but let's just admit that it's there the so the most commonly so do you guys know what the revised common lectionary is we don't use it at, at our church at paley presbyterian if you're part of another church you may use it it's a lot of Catholic churches, Episcopalian churches, Lutheran churches will use it. It's basically an assigned set of readings. Every week, yeah. Every week. Yeah, for every week. And they rotate over a three-year period. So it, it's very helpful for people if you don't want to think of, okay, what the heck am I going to preach on this year? It, you know, it gives you a set of texts. The reason I mention it is the, what are the topics that are always omitted from the revised common lectionary. <laughs> it's 
number one, anything having to do with sexuality. Mm-hmm. Number two, passages like this one, yeah. like this one. I think this one is in the lectionary, but the passages like this one that have to do with divine judgment. Yeah. And that's not because they're bad or wrong. Um, it's just because they're very difficult to preach on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I, the people running the Revised Common Lectionary, understandably, don't want to assign a nation of weary preachers the ropes course, <laughs> right? They want to make it easy on them. They don't want to give them the, you know, the black diamond of scripture texts to preach on. Okay. So mm-hmm. we've got passages like this one in the Bible. Did anyone read Romans 9 through 11? Yes. Uh, so um, I'm not going to read that out loud. That's a far longer passage of the Bible. It's three whole chapters. Mm. But I really encourage you to read it. Um, it's it, that that one comes up a fair bit in Augustine, for instance. Yeah. In mm-hmm. our reading for today, he quotes Romans nine through eleven a fair bit, um, and it, it it's probably worth looking at if you're very curious about this topic. Um, did anyone who read it, if you read it, do you want to share a comment on it or a thought about it? Key passage. That's that it's not the natural children, but it's the children of faith. Mm-hmm. Part of what's going on there, right, is that Romans 9 through 11 starts out by Paul trying to say, why haven't the Jews accepted Jesus? So one of the things that passage is about is why, why Paul's own people haven't become Christians the way he hoped and prayed they would. And part, Paul's answer has a lot to do with God choosing, with divine sovereignty and divine predestination. I don't want to use that word and make Lou upset, but I think <laughs> that's kind of swimming around in the background there, right? Yeah. And it, it has a lot, like, fr- from passages like that one are very um, important support for Augustine as he develops this traditional view. Mm-hmm. So... I encourage you to check it out um, over the next couple of weeks um, because it's very, very rich and very profound. May I suggest people can go to Romans 9. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm. So that's about the Gentile inclusion into Israel. Yeah. Um, That's a very important part of what he's after. The part that's most salient for our purposes, right, is that part of Paul's answer is, look, God is ultimately in charge of who believes and who doesn't believe. (laughs) And it may be that, you know, essentially part of what he winds up saying is God is um, using the Gentile believers to make Jews jealous. And maybe what will happen is that the Jews will see the Gentiles coming to faith and say, oh, wow, this Jesus really is exciting. We want some of that, right? And then they will, they will believe in Jesus and be saved. But, you know, when Paul says, who are you to question God, right? There, these, these, um, bears significantly as we will see on our understanding of how heaven and hell works so with that in mind 
let's turn to St. Augustine and talk a little bit about him. And I can flesh out exactly what I mean. So it'll be a little bit clearer um, exactly what Augustine does with passages like Romans 9 through 11 once we talk more about his views. Here's what we're going to do. Each week, we're going to talk about a different view on heaven and hell. Um, and we'll have one or maybe two figures who advocate that view. And, and this week, um, the, the central figure that we're going to be engaging with is a guy named Augustine of Hippo. Um, he lived in the 300s and 400s. He died in around 430 AD. Um, he's considered, he is certainly the most important and influential Christian theologian that's ever lived. I feel pretty confident in saying that. Um, that doesn't mean he was right about everything, far from it, but he he was very good at what he did and his views subsequently became very, very influential in the church, especially in the Catholic tradition based in Rome and then kind of by osmosis to we Protestants. So even if you've never heard of him and don't know him from a hole in the ground, he's had some influence on you um, that you may not be aware of. And he's going to be our advocate, like the person that's contending for this point of view. So let me just tell you a little bit about him and why he's important. So here's a painting of him. This painting is a, is a famous painting. Has anyone ever seen this one before? Some of us may have. So it's, it's actually in the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Um, it's a very well-known portrait of Augustine was painted more than a thousand years after he died. It was painted in the 1600s by a Flemish painter. But if you look, you see a couple things, right? So you can see he's looking up uh, sort of to his left to the sun of divine illumination. And what has he got in his right hand? He's got a, a quill, something to write with. He was a prolific, pro pro prolific writer and author. And you can see in his left hand, he's got a heart. And the heart is on fire. That doesn't mean he has heartburn. It, um, it's a symbol of one of the great themes of his writing. Augustine, one of Augustine's recurring motifs is the idea of love. And the idea that God is love, the idea that we human beings are defined by what we love and how we love, whether we love God or other things, whether we love our neighbors or prefer ourselves. It's a very central image to him. So keep this in mind as you're thinking about him. Some other salient facts about Augustine. He was an adult convert to the Christian faith. He's, he wrote an autobiography, a book called The Confessions. Um, if you've never read The Confessions, I encourage you to go out and read it. It is an amazing, amazing book, um, a literary masterpiece. It, some people consider it the first autobiography um, at least in the Western world, um, certainly one of the very earliest reflective accounts of a person's life. And it's the story of his Christian faith. So it talks about him growing up or losing his Christian faith, affiliating with different sects outside the Catholic church, and finally as an adult, um, coming to faith and entering the church. Um, after he became a Christian, Augustine became a pastor and eventually a bishop in the Mediterranean. So we call him Augustine of Hippo. Hippo was a town in North Africa. It's in modern day Tunisia. 
where he served as a bishop and a parish pastor. So one of the things that's amazing to me is that he wrote all these very deep and profound theological works while he was also serving as a pastor. And, and he, I know that he had some of the same sorts of interruptions and challenges in his day-to-day -day life that I also have, right? So um, it's amazing to think about. He's venerated as a saint in the Catholic church. Uh, there is an Augustinian religious order. So Catholic priests can become Augustinian monks. Um, the Augustinians are still doing very well for themselves. Among other things, they run Villanova. So I, the current president of Villanova, I believe is a um, Augustinian brother. More importantly for our purposes, um, Augustine was a profound intellectual and a very engaged controversialist. So by that, I don't mean that he was a jerk. I just mean that he was involved as a leader in many of the most important um, church debates of his age. So if you ask, you know, when did Augustine live? He lived from 350 to 430 AD. Okay, what were the debates during that time? Well, they were this and that and the other thing. And who were the decisive people involved? Well, it was Augustine versus this guy and Augustine versus that guy and Augustine versus this other guy. Um, and he, he often inherits these debates. They're sort of on simmer when he becomes an adult and they come to a boil as he leads them. And he kind of, he, his influence is decisive in passing on resolution to the later church tradition. Again, doesn't mean he was right, but as a matter of historical record, his influence is unsurpassed. So church historians love to say, church history is a series of footnotes to Augustine. <laughs> and at first you think that can't possibly be true. And then you think, well, maybe it actually, it might be true. Um, it's a series of footnotes to Augustine. Because of his immense influence, he also produces by far the biggest crop of haters, critics, um, people who really think everything wrong in the history of the church can be traced back to this guy. So um, it's sometimes his reception can be quite polarized in different corners of the church. Um, but he's enormously influential as a thinker. That's the thing you've got to know. So um, he's a big deal. Okay, we're starting to creep back to our topic. Now. The debate that's most relevant to our discussion is this long-running debate Augustine has with a guy named Pelagius. So this is sometimes known as the Pelagian debate. So Augustine's on one side, Pelagius is on the other, and this is a debate about the role of divine grace in salvation. It's about exactly what role divine grace plays when we come to faith, when we believe in Jesus, when we walk rightly with him. Because of his decisive role in this debate, Augustine is often known as the doctor of grace. That's one of his titles. So Pelagius is basically an optimist about human capabilities and human nature. And Pelagius basically says, we do not need special divine assistance to be saved. We do not need special divine assistance to live properly. We can please God by our actions and under our own power. 
So when I say he's an optimist, right, you can hear the optimism in there. It, his, his point of view is, yes, pleasing God by works is hard, but by gum, you can do it. And what you need to do is just grit your teeth and dig in your heels and just try harder. And over against this, Augustine takes up a series of views that now seem, they seem, they often seem correct and right to us. It's, it's because they've become so commonplace. They've become woven into the fabric of the Christian point of view over the course of a thousand plus years. They were very much live issues back then. Augustine says, no, we do need divine grace to be saved. No one can be saved without divine grace. Without divine grace, we cannot please God. Salvation is a gift of grace and not an achievement to be earned. Nobody's capable of it by virtue of their own powers. Um, most interestingly, and, and again, most controversially, Augustine, Augustine is the one that codifies the doctrine of, of so-called original sin, which is the idea that um, we sin not only by virtue of the things we do in our life, but just by virtue of the sin we inherit from Adam and Eve, our first parents. So hopefully this idea of original sin is familiar to all of you, right? Very, um, it, there are people that believe this before Augustine. Augustine is the one that sort of gives it a name, gives it a title, and passes it on to those who come later in a powerful and persuasive way. So and this also has something to do with infant baptism, which is becoming a practice around his time as well. The first 300, 400 years, parents are increasingly bringing their children to the church and saying, okay, uh, we don't want him to be baptized later. We want to baptize little Jimmy right now, even though he's only six months old, just so that he gets all of his sin washed away and he'll be good to go, right? Okay. Now, with I want you to keep that dispute, that debate in the back of your mind, the Pelagian dispute, the dispute about grace and the necessity of divine grace to be saved, because it's going to help you make sense of what I'm about to lay out. Um, so what I'm going to do now is just summarize the, the eternal conscious torment view, the traditional view, um, and then we can talk about it a little bit. Um, these are the same points that Hunsinger uses to summarize Augustine's view as well, so I'm leaning heavily on him, as I will throughout this class. Um, all right, I'm going to keep going. We're going through each of these seven points one at a time. We're also going to be keeping one eye on Augustine's work in the Enchiridion. Enchiridion. Sorry, I've never said that out loud before. Enchiridion. So, um, yeah, I'll just go to the seven of them. So the, the first one is hell is real. So the first point, basic bedrock, right? Not all human beings are saved, and all those persons who are not saved go to hell. So you can see this in Augustine's writings where he says, not all, not even a majority of people are saved. So um, one of the things that's striking about Augustine's understanding of salvation and damnation is there is a thoroughgoing skepticism about human nature. <laughs> um, and sometimes you think, 
you're being way too hard on people, Augustine. And other times you think, yeah, you're right. People are like that. And it sort of depends on what kind of day you're having or what group of people you're thinking of at the time, right? Um, hell is real. Not all human beings are saved. All those persons who are not saved go to hell. Number two, hell is severe, severely bad, that is, right? It's, it is unimaginably terrible. So it's not as bad as you might have imagined. It's worse. Um, it's really, really bad. Related to this is the third point. Hell is eternal. So not only is hell indescribably bad, but it goes on and on forever. And these sort of two things are kind of like linked, right? So you, of course, we'll recall what we saw in the Gospel of Matthew, where it says those on the king's left hand go into the eternal fire, right? The fire that doesn't die out, doesn't go away. Um, there's a wonderful, have any of you ever seen the movie Annie Hall featuring Woody Allen? So there's a wonderful scene in Annie Hall where he says, here's how I feel about life. Like, like life is like two old ladies complaining about the lunch they had. And one of them says, oh, that lunch was terrible. I hated it. And the other lady says, yeah, it was so terrible. It was awful. My gosh, it was the worst meal I've ever had. And such small portions, right? So they're, they're complaining about two irreconcilable things, right? They're complaining that the food was bad and that there wasn't enough of it. Hell is like that in reverse, right? So hell is terrible and awful and, and incredible. And it goes on and on and on and on forever right? It's like the worst possible buffet that you have to keep eating from. <laughs> um, so you can see this, this very severe quote from Augustine. This is from the Enchiridion. To be lost out of the kingdom of God, to be in exile from the city of God, to be estranged from the life of God, to suffer loss of the great abundance of God's blessings, which he has hidden for those who fear him and prepared for those who hope in him. This would be a punishment so great that if it be eternal, no torments that we know could be compared to it, no matter how many ages they continued. Strong stuff, I know. Some of you are probably ready to move, <laughs> to move on from Augustine right now, but bear with me. We got a few more points and then we're gonna, we're gonna take this apart a little bit, okay? Here's a little footnote. As we will see in coming weeks, um, this is one of the places where um, some of our different interlocutors will disagree with Augustine. So specifically both universalists who are the second group and annihilationists who are the third group disagree with point number three. They disagree with the idea that hell is eternal. Interestingly, they will disagree for different reasons and on different grounds. And we'll have a chance to look at this in more detail in coming weeks. So a, a universalist might say, look, as bad as human sin is, and it's really, really bad, it's terrible, the idea of a finite human being meriting or deserving an eternal punishment is unjust, it's incommensurate, right? The wrong a human person can do during their lifetime is ultimately finite and they can't be justly punished for infinity. That's what a universalist might say to point number three, Whereas an annihilationist might say, hell is indescribably terrible and the, the damned do in fact go there, but 
hell doesn't last forever because once you get there, there you're ultimately just wiped out. You ceased to be. So we can see here just the beginnings of some divergence between our four views and the beginnings of some different reasons why we might have the opinions we have. All right, I'm gonna keep going through the end here and then we'll, we'll stop and have some questions. Number four, hell is penal. That is hell is aimed at punishment. Um, it's aiming not at purification, it's aiming not at purgation, it's not a timeout, it's not temporary, it's just um, the appropriate punishment for what sinful people have done. So there's this quotation you can see here, this is not from the Entria Don, it's from the City of God, hell is inflicted exclusively in retribution for sins. So whatever hell is about, it's not about rehabilitation. Number five, hell is just. It is fair, deserved, right. This is, I think, the hardest point for us to understand as modern people. And so I, I, I'll spend a little more time on this one, but just because it's important for us to understand where Augustine's coming from. So Augustine's point of view is, and it, this is based on the Bible, um, at least he thinks it's based on the Bible, right? Um, through sin, we harm and offend not only ourselves and one another, we also harm and offend God. We sin against God. So think of Psalm 51, right? I, I believe that's it. One of the penitential Psalms the psalmist says, he lays out all his sins and says, I've done all these wrong, wrong things. And then in a crescendo, he says, against you, God, you only have I sinned. So there's this sense that God is um, the aggrieved or offended party in addition to humanity when we sin. And the fitting punishment for a sin against God is eternal damnation. So in Augustine's view, as terrible as hell is, the people there are receiving their just deserts. He really, he really believes this. He thinks hell is a just place. And that's, it's a challenging idea for me. I'm betting it's challenging for many of you, um, but it's, it's important to him. So this fits into what he talks about when it comes to the doctrine of original sin. So doctrine of original sin, if you wanted to summarize it in a bald way, it would be to say the entire human race merits damnation, <laughs> right? Because of the sin of Adam and Eve. So you can look again at the Psalms where it says, I was a sinner from my mother's womb. So, because Augustine has such a strong understanding of the universality of human sin, everybody is a sinner. Even little Timmy, who was just born three weeks ago, he, he is already a sinner, in fact, because he has inherited sin through being a member of the human species. And in fact, when Timmy grows up, what will we find? We will find he turns out to be another sinner, just like you and me. Everybody's a sinner. And it's the universality of sin and the depth of sin is another thing that Augustine underscores, right? That we're not just in the wrong, we're so in the wrong against God that it would be fair for us to go to hell. You see this if you look at the assigned reading from Augustine today, because he, sa he says once or twice, 
it would have even been fair for God not to save or redeem any human beings at all, <laughs> right? Right. Um, part of what he's getting at is, part of what he's getting at is that God doesn't, is not obligated to give human beings mercy. Um, that's his point of view. God is not obligated to give human beings mercy or grace. And so when he does, it's entirely free, entirely gracious, entirely sovereign. And when he does not extend mercy to someone, um, it is not unfair or unjust because what happens to that person is simply the, the just punishment for what they've done. Okay, that's a really complicated and frankly, rather unpalatable idea. I'm concerned that I've lost you all in this very hard turn into Augustine uh, damnationism. So let's take a minute and just share some responses and some questions that you have. So where are you at as I'm sharing this? Okay. Uh, question, so uh, with the Augustus, Augustus of Hippo, the damnation is not for our original sin, but for the original but for the sin we've done. There's that sin that we deserve just because we're children of Adam, Adam, born of Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. But there's also the sin because of what we've done. Yes. So there, which, there of, are, which there of are. those, is it both or is it one more than the other? Yeah. It's just for our the deeds that we've done. Is that what um, Augustus of Hippo was saying? No, it's, it's both. So it we, both can, we can be... In Augustine's point of view is we can be fairly sent to hell on the basis of wrong things that we've done, or we can be fairly sent to hell solely on the basis of original sin. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and I, this is important to spell out, even though it's unpleasant. Yes, like Augustine you. thinks that like, if you have a baby and the baby dies at a week old, right, that baby might go to hell. Mm -hmm. And you see this, right? Like, if you, if you were grown, if you were raised Catholic, you may be acquainted with piety that is within a hailing distance of this point of view, right? Yes. Like so, you don't pick up your baby even to go across the street because you never know. You could trip and fall. The baby could die. And then. Right. So, and this is, this is where infant baptism comes in as a force as well as the desire to cleanse infants from original sin. Right. Right. And so to be able to say, okay, at least if the baby dies, they're not going to go to hell. Now, I don't, I don't believe much of that at all. I have a very different perspective, but that's the sort of inner logic of what's, of how it's playing out for people. Um, yeah. So part of what's, part of what's hard to think yourself into is this viewpoint that like what every human being deserves, every human being is in the wrong before God and therefore what they deserve is damnation. Mm -hmm. very very severe it, it seems like this point of view would naturally discourage any of us from bothering to try because he's saving you know he says you know a few of you miserable lowlifes might get saved <laughs> it doesn't matter so i mean okay but then the whole thing about good work seems somewhat negated unless there's more to come where he says oh but you can dig yourself out but he hasn't said that yet no and, and he's um 
he's not he's not going to so he's very and we'll talk more about this like you put your finger on something important here Kim. like he's he is all in <laughs> as the kids say on um divine sovereignty right so the idea that that god god is in charge and in control and ultimately um is um in control of what will happen and what human beings what human beings do he the obvious question this raises right is how then you know what relationship does this have to the ordinary choosing that we do in our everyday life right someone cuts me off in traffic i have to decide whether or not i'm going to give them the finger i really want to give them the finger but you know maybe i will or maybe i won't i think remember he's a pastor he's talking to people every day we're dealing with this so i think part of what he would say is he would say two things he would say first of all this is this is the 50,000 foot view and the, you know this is the big picture of of trying to see things as much from God's point of view as possible. And in, when, when we look at it from our personal point of view, it may look different or feel different. That doesn't mean that this is, is not true, at least in his mind. And second, like part of what, so remember like Augustine has a lot to say about love, right? And so he has a lot, he has a lot to say about motivation. So part of what he, part of what he is such a genius about is understanding that like, you know, so you bring your kids to church and you hope that Christianity, how do you, you want them to become Christian? How do you get your kids to be Christian? Right. You can teach them the Bible and pray with them and um, send them on mission trips and do all the right things. And, yet there's still this element of mystery, right? You're, you're, at some level, your kids are going to fall in love with God or they might not, right? Same is true of my kids. Same is true of everybody's kids, right? One thing you know as a parent is you're not fully in control. And I think that's where he puts his oar in the water is to say, it's not that we don't, not that we don't, we shouldn't try. Um, and it's not, certainly not that people who are saved by God won't do good deeds. He thinks they will. It's more that there is this mystery at the heart of our faith about why some people have faith and respond and why others don't. Does that, does that help address your, speak to your concerns somewhat? I'm, I still disagree with him myself, but I'm, I'm trying to help you see why he thinks the way he does. Yeah, I, I think that helped. I, I still don't totally accept it, but <laughs> it helped. I get his I get what he's saying, I, you know, that the sovereignty of God and that everybody, nobody can measure up. And God is if you if you offend God, he has a right to obliterate you. But where does the salvation of Jesus come in? Yeah, sure. In all this. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, so let me. Um, let me take the last two points. Okay. So guys, this is, we are five sevenths through looking at Augustine's view. This is the most frowny face of all views <laughs> on heaven and hell. <laughs> okay. Don't, don't despair. 
It's not like 80 more hours of looking at different variations on this theme. Okay. <laughs> but we're going to, we're going to bring it back in a little bit. Um, <laughs> don't quit on me, but we have two more points. Okay. Um, to, to give him his due. All right. So let me move on to the sixth point. <laughs> so hell is ordained by God. <laughs> hell is ordained by God. This is another point of Augustine's, um, perspective on heaven and hell that's really important hell is not an impersonal consequence of sin it is not something that just happens it's not something that god permits but does not desire it's something ordained or chosen by god so sometimes you'll hear people talk as though damnation somehow represents the defeat or thwarting of God's will, um, right? That a, a human person's choices somehow trump God's desire for redemption. Augustine doesn't think like that. Augustine thinks, okay, God is transcendent and sovereign and in charge when what God wills is that some people have faith and go to heaven and that other people don't have faith and go to hell. So you can see here, quotes from our text. No one is saved unless God wills their salvation. <laughs> and if God wills it, it must necessarily be accomplished. And the converse is also true. No one is damned unless God wills it according to the divine justice. So many, de many defenses of hell, especially in the 19th and 20th century, so relatively contemporary from the perspective of church history, get off the train at this point. So they're, they're going to finesse this point or walk it back somehow, right? So for instance, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which some of you may have read, um, we may visit it when we get to week um, the, the third position, the annihilation, annihilationist position. Um, we'll make we'll make this point. They'll simply say, no, God doesn't um, God doesn't ordain hell. God doesn't want hell to happen. People are there by their own choice, and they could leave anytime they wanted. So the story of the great divorce, for instance, is the story of a man who's in hell, and every week in hell, there's a bus that leaves hell that goes to heaven. And people in hell get on this bus and they go to heaven and they get to heaven and they look at the streets of gold and the angels and the saints and they think, what an awful place. Oh, all those terrible people, right? And what Lewis is doing is dramatizing the idea that hell is not divinely ordained, right? There's no gate to heaven that's keep, or no gate to hell that's locking people in. It's, it's something that they have perversely chosen for themselves. So in this sense, Lewis is not Augustinian. He is, he is not traditional. The traditional answer is that hell is ordained by God. Okay, last one. Hell is inscrutable. So ultimately impossible for us to understand. So Augustine says, look, we believe that all of God's dealings are just and right, whether he saves a person or damns a person, whether they go to heaven or to hell, 
on Earth, we cannot fully understand exactly why this is the case. There's an element of mystery here. Um, so Augustine says, for instance, right, all human beings everywhere are in the wrong before God. It would be just and right for God to damn them all to hell. If God chose not to save a single person, he would have been entirely just and right to do that. Um, we also know that God is not in the wrong to save some people. Um, that God does so shows mercy um, and grace. And he's not, he's not wrong for saving some people and not others. However, why God chooses to save some, why God chooses to do it exactly in that way, to save some and not others, to save this person and not that person, to not save everyone when he might well have willed to save everyone. These are things we do not know and cannot know as long as we are pilgrims on earth. So there is an element, there's a strong element of mystery here, a strong respect for divine transcendence. And here you see, coming back in, this idea of Romans 9 through 11. So Augustine says, if a person does not understand these matters, who is he that he should reply against God? So leaning on Paul's letter to the Romans, part of what Paul is going, part of what Augustine is going to say is, hey, we don't fully understand why salvation happens, why it comes to some people and not to others. Um, some people get the gospel message and other people don't. I, I don't understand it either, but I know that I'm a human being and not God. So all those elements together make this traditional view. All right, let's keep talking about it. I'm guessing that many of you disagree with it. <laughs> I certainly do as well. Tell me, tell me, share your comments, share your objections. I'd love to hear from you. Jesus took my punishment. Jesus took our punishment. Right. So that changes things. Yes. But he doesn't go into, but St. Augustine at this point doesn't go into that. Um. That's true. That's true. Yeah. In this particular he certainly believes right. that, but he's not, he's not in the assigned reading, especially he's not dwelling on the crucifixion at length. Mm -hmm. I, certainly he believes that Jesus Christ has atoned for sins for those who believe in him. But he isn't, he's consistent here with Romans nine to 11. That that's very August, Augustinian. I mean, it goes back, he goes back to that part of the scripture. That's Absolutely. Really so, in so agreement. Augustine thinks of himself as standing on the shoulders of Paul. Yeah. Now, again, right? So all theological disagreements are up here and they're all resting on the foundation of the Bible, which is down here. So a sufficient amount of disagreement up here drives you down to the Bible down here, right? So... As it happens, I don't think Romans 9 through 11, uh, I don't want to read it in the way Augustine read it, reads it. And I think there are responsible other ways to read it that don't demand the kinds of conclusions Augustine arrives at. Mm -hmm. But he has a strong, there is, there are many passages of scripture that he can cite to support his point of view. There's no question. Uh, Dave? 
Yeah. Is it Augustine that came up with the idea of purgatory? Isn't that his concept also? Uh, so it kind of mediates his uh, a little bit. You know, I, like we all don't go directly to hell if you haven't co committed uh, a mortal sin, a, a, you know, extreme sin. Then yeah. you go to purgatory and then you kind of you'd be cleansed and Purge. through pur you get purged and then eventually. Okay. Is that is that Augustinian or is that something else? I, I feel like that comes later. I feel like okay. a, a, a subsequent development to Augustine, I might be wrong. Because I, I thought I read something in, in the writings that you, yeah, I thought there was a mention he talked about. He talks about purifying. Purifying. Uh, and, and actually people, and he mentions and people praying for people that are in that. So if I can find, if I find it, I'll let you know. I, I thought I, I'm pretty sure I read it. You may very well have picked up a detail that I missed. Thank you. Thank you. Or maybe he, uh, Lou read the confessions. Maybe you read it in the confessions. No, it was in, the, not this one, the other one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, other, other um, objections or responses to Augustine? Well, I have one question. I mean, this eternal conscious torment, even a little bit of it, would really wipe you out. So it's hard to imagine how a human spirit could withstand just repeated eternal punishment. Right. right. So that is like really hard to project. I mean, none of us suffer very long without many complaints. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, right, it, it's striking, isn't it? So in this mortal life here on earth, on one hand, human beings can kind of take a lot of abuse, um, emotional and physical. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I, there's certainly a finite amount that we can take. And, um, you know, as we get older in life, we begin to experience our physical limits more, more profoundly. And part of what the traditional view calls for in terms of both heaven and hell is heaven is like this life only unimaginably better. <laughs> and hell is like this life only unimaginably worse. You know, and what does it mean to have such, like if you experience profound, profound suffering in this life for a year, you know, it might shorten your lifespan by 10 years. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and we all, you know, you've all seen pictures of, you know, people, here's this photo taken. And then two days later, they lost their spouse and now they look three years older. Right. Um, wouldn't, a, even a moment in hell just kind of wipe a person out. So Augustine talks about this, um, in, in his writings and you can go back and you can go back and look like he basically says part of what distinguishes hell from ordinary human life is that in, in hell you cannot die right oh. so that you're unfortunately one of the distinctive things about hell is that it's as bad as you can possibly imagine and it it just won't stop okay and that's yeah i mean i i'm i don't find that that's that's really rough, but I think he thinks that's the that is the distinguishing feature of it, right? Another question I want to ask, in addition to your thoughts and objections, uh, is what passages of scripture 
can you think of that might be at odds with Augustine's point of view? So um, one of the things I want to encourage you to do is, you know, think with the Bible um, as we read this. If, if there is a passage of scripture that comes to mind that might stand in some tension with um, Augustine, that's great. If you don't know of one, that's also fine. But if you've got one in your mind, go ahead and, and share it. How about John 3.16? <laughs> John 3.16, of course, the, the most famous um, verse in the whole Bible. Sure. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with two conceptions of God? One conception being very remote, transcendent, almost disciplinary life. And the other conception being a loving God. Um, that's a really good question. I think, so I'll try and tell you what I think Augustine would say. Okay. And then I'll give my own answer. So I think what Augustine would say is, no, I think we're dealing with the same one, one God. Um, and the Bible says, the Bible, in, in the Bible, God tells us, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy and God is, God is God and we're not. And God has decided to save, save a remnant of his people purely out of his sheer love and mercy. And we don't deserve it. There's nothing special about us. He's just decided to do it for his own mysterious reasons. And praise be his name for doing it. And unfortunately, those other people over there are you know, weren't saved. I don't know why, but they're getting what they deserve. And that's the way it is. So that's what Augustine might say. Now, one important thing that we're going to talk about in coming weeks, when we get into the criticisms of this point of view, is Augustine does separate out God's love and God's justice, right? So, and you can venture a criticism of that if you want, right? So to these people that he sends to hell, God is just and fair. To these people over here that he sends to heaven, God is loving and merciful. By the time we get to week four, the, the agnostics, the people like Karl Barth, for instance, Karl, Karl Barth makes a lot of saying God's love and God's justice must never be separated and God can never be just to a person without also being loving and he can't be loving to a person without also being just so the kind of separation of those fates is is really important to him so in other words I think Augustine wouldn't say hey I've created two different gods but there are subsequent voices in the Christian tradition that are going to say okay wait a second why is God um, by separating out the human race into these two widely divergent fates, we've created almost two different gods, right? Or we've separated these qualities in God that need to be held together. All right. So what other, what other thoughts or objections or passages of scripture come to mind in this moment? How about Luke? Uh, Luke 23, verse 43, 
when Jesus speaks to the thief next to him on the cross. Sure. Says, Today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't ask, uh, you know, what he'd done for the miserable people. He didn't ask. Didn't say, show me your ticket. Yeah. I mean, there were absolutely no, he, the thief did say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right. Which, uh, you know, you can say, okay, he acknowledges him as Lord, but that seems pretty much jumping over all the requirements for going to heaven. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly that's a powerful, that is a powerful example of um, God's grace and mercy, right? So I've, I've talked to at least one other person um, this last week who was thinking about this course and that passage came to mind as well. Um, yeah. Let me, I'm going to stop sharing. Well, I was going to say that that's kind of, in a way, reassuring. I mean, that's kind of a reassuring um, statement that Augustine makes when he says uh, uh, that God wills it. It's according to his divine just, you know, his, his, it's his divine justice. So it's up to God. We don't have to we don't have to worry about it. You know, God, it's, uh, no one is damned unless God wills it according to his justice. Yeah. So, um, you know, God wills sal someone's salvation. Um, God wills, uh, you know, it's, it's up to him. And yeah. so in a way I find, in a way that's kind of reassuring, you know? That, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so th this is actually the, um, I think this is one of the things that's so interesting about Augustine, right? Maybe I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> I find it interesting to work with figures that, ha where I say, you're right about some things and you're wrong about these other things. And let me try and untangle the right bits from the wrong bits. Th that is a morning well spent for me, right? Um, so part of what I find so compelling about Augustine is this idea of the, the priority of divine grace and the priority of divine transcendence and the, the strong account of divine sovereignty that you find here, right? And, and, and the comment you just made, Gail, points to that exactly. You know, the idea that like, ultimately the people who are, people who are saved are, saved by God's grace and the people who are judged are judged by divine justice. And it's not up to us. It's up to God. I like that. And I think that's really good. Um, and the, the whole idea that it is, it is grace that saves us. So at one point in the reading for today, Augustine says, the only thing that separates the saved from the damned is grace. <laughs> that's the difference. Um, I, that's, there's a lot of profound stuff there that I appreciate. The challenge for me is how to keep, is Augustine is a very consistent thinker. So his conclusions follow logically from his presuppositions. 
And if you accept his presuppositions, it is difficult not to arrive at the same conclusions he arrives at, even though you may not like them. <laughs> and so part of the reason I appreciate him is that although I disagree with many of his conclusions, um, he is admirably clear and consistent in how he goes about them, right? So for, I say that because for me, the challenge is how do I keep the strong account of divine grace that you find in Augustine? How do you keep the emphasis on we do need God's help to be saved? We cannot do it on our own while finding a way around the, the very severe account of damnation and salvation that um, I think many people, when they read it, think, okay, there's, I don't like this. There's a problem here somewhere. It's harder to criticize than it seems, partly because he has such good grounds to appeal to in scripture and, and partly because it's very, it's very consistent in what he presents. So I'm walking a fine line here and I hope you can hear me. I'm not trying to say he's right, but I'm, I'm trying to say there are bits of this that we wanna appropriate. Does that make sense? Yeah, Nancy. Um, I don't know if I'm understanding this correctly, but when Augustine says that it's by God's grace that some are selected and by his justice that some are not. Is there any mention of grace as a gift and that the recipient needs to accept it as opposed to um, rejecting the gift? Is there, is there any human interaction involved in this or is this, this just God up there going, mm, dark, yeah, you get grace, <laughs> dark, no, you don't. Right. So that's a great question, Nancy, and I'm glad you asked that. So yes and no. So Augustine thinks, how to put this? He does not think that human beings have the power to accept or reject divine grace on their own. So like, um, if God makes up his mind that you are going to accept divine grace, you, you will accept it. <laughs> so the, and we often like to think, okay, God will make an offer of divine grace to someone, and then they have a free choice about whether or not to accept the offer of divine grace. Um, that's a, that's a very, uh, it's a very standard way to think. It's very American. I hear, I hear people talk like that. Augustine doesn't think like that. So he thinks, um, the the human beings the human person's mind is so clouded by sin that they will never choose god unless god breaks through and shakes them up and and basically um reboots them so that they then do god's will so it's it is it sounds a little a little bit like humanity is a puppet and god is the puppeteer that's not exactly what he has in mind, but he, he is not a free will defender of, um, of hell, hell and damnation, right? So when we get to week, to the third group of people, the annihilationists, maybe we'll also read um, 
C.S. Lewis that week as well, right? Like there are plenty of free will defenses of hell, especially in the modern period. And those people say, well, of course, God wants to give salvation to everybody, but people have the power to reject salvation. Um, Augustine says, no, people reject salvation. People don't have that free choice, right? If God decides they're going to accept it, they're going to accept it. And that is of a piece with his very strong account of divine sovereignty and his strong account of divine grace. There's a uh, aphorism, I think, from Augustine. Without God, we can do nothing. Without us, God will do nothing. Hmm. I don't know. I think about that, and that's a puzzle. Maybe that helps answer some of the questions. Sure. No wonder not every time I try to say something that nobody heard me. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I keep thinking about Putin through all this, and I keep thinking of what Gail said. And and you're happy that when you hear this, that God does have the final say, and He makes the judgment because you do hate to see someone like that get away with the awful things that they do. Yeah. And you you do wonder when you look at, you know, Brutus and you look at somebody like Putin and does God know ahead of time that they're, they're not going to go to heaven and that, or that they're doing terrible things. And does he decide ahead of time, who's going to love him and follow and who isn't. And are you just lucky that you were born to be somebody he made to want to follow him? I mean, I often wonder this. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so I've really guys <laughs> into the deep end this week. Um, and I am your lifeguard. I am here to journey with you through these waters. Like this is very, very deep stuff, right? So the flip side of, um, yeah, there's certainly a flip side to this strong emphasis on divine grace and divine sovereignty that you find in Augustine. And some of it are these questions about, predestination, questions about the problem of evil, all of those, those sorts of things also crop up as well. Yeah. Um, what we are going to see, I want to go back to the point um, um, I made in response to um, Stephen Bruner's question a few minutes ago. So one of the things you're going to see in the, in the um, agnostics, when we look at Karl Barth, so um, I will tell you now, pretty much, I love all the people we're going to read. I think they're all brilliant. My heart belongs to Karl Barth, okay? So he's the one that will come the closest to my own views. Um, one of the things that Barth does that's a characteristic is he, he says, we cannot do what Augustine does and say that God's justice and God's mercy are two different things. I, it's the simplest thing in the world, but I actually think it's very profound for how we think about this question of heaven and hell. Um, that, and you know, what Bart says is like, what we see on the cross is not mercy enacted at the expense of justice. We see mercy and justice sort of hand in hand on the cross happening at the same time. And I, I think that's, one way to begin to theologically criticize 
right? It's easy to look at what Augustine says and say, I don't like this. This is too mean and cynical and, and, and um, too skeptical about human beings, which it may be. I think the more, the more interesting criticism to make is rooted in our understanding of scripture and saying, this is not, for Augustine, there is this sense that like the God of love we see revealed on the cross shows his face only to a precious limited number of people. <laughs> and we have to find, we have to rethink what that God is like in order to do justice to what we've seen in Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, anyone want to ask a question in conclusion, um, a comment, anything like that? What, what does Augustine think about the role of the devil in the idea of original sin? Because if he's responsible for it all, then why did God permit it? That's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. Um, you know, certainly Augustine has a pretty, you know, he's writing long before Charles Darwin. Um, he has a pretty um, traditional account of, of the fall of Adam and Eve being tempted by the serpent, which is the devil. The, the key thing for him, I think, is that even though they're tempted by someone else, it's, it is a guilt that accrues to humanity. So they um, are not able to pass off the blame onto anyone else. Um, it's, it's their, their own culpability for it. But that's, that's a good question. I wish I knew more about that. Well, I just wonder where he thinks the original sin came from. I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, if he, yeah, was he, if he wasn't responsible for it, then why did he allow it? And I mean, what point is there in having it? And then to condemn everybody because they've got it. I mean, to me, it doesn't make sense. Sure, sure. Yeah, um, that's a profound question as well, right? So where does, so what you're asking the question is, where does original sin come from in the first place, right? And how, do, you know, how is it possible for humanity in a, as we say, a pre-lapsarian state <laughs> a state where no one's no one's sinning where nothing bad has ever happened no one's ever flouted god's will how is it possible to go from that to a state of of sin where we're all in bondage to sin all the time and we can't break out of it except for god's grace um yeah that that's a deep one so you know augustine has an understanding of satan of satan being an angel of satan being tempted and falling and so the sort of theological preamble to Genesis one through three is Satan's own fallen temptation. Um, well, I know, but if he fell, something must've happened to him too, poor yeah. guy. Yeah. So at, at a certain point, right? So, and this is, this is a really, a really important thread you're pulling on at a certain point, right? You, we can go that far, right? So we, we can go from my life, to the life of every human being, to the life of our first parents, Adam and Eve, however we understand them, right? So now all of a sudden we're way back in the mists of primeval humanity. And then we can go back past them to what are the conditions for the possibility of sin ever to exist in the first place. Yeah. And we, we might start talking about the devil at that point, 
(laughs) at a certain point right you've got to play the mystery card (laughs) and say we we don't understand we there's only so much that we're told in holy scripture we're told enough to go to heaven but not enough to have all the answers that we want right and and this is one right if you if you part of what you know original sin is a difficult pill to swallow especially in its very strong form that you get it in augustine yeah and next so next week um one of the readings i next week i suggest a whole book and it's uh under the category for further reading so i'm not expecting you to really read a whole book but um, it's a book called That All Shall Be Saved by a guy named David Bentley Hart, who's Eastern Orthodox. So he's basically like Greek Orthodox. And one of the interesting things about Orthodox Christians is they don't like Augustine very much and they don't like the idea of original sin. Mm-hmm. So in his book, he's just like, oh, this, you know, he, part of the reason he's a universalist and thinks everybody's going to go to heaven is that he doesn't have any time for this idea of original sin. Um, I'm, I'm not going all that way with him. It's an interesting theological question. We do at a certain point have to say, okay, we, we don't understand and we probably reach the limits of our human ability to understand at that point. Um, at the question of where does sin even come from? How does sin or resistance to God's will ever enter the picture in the first place? Such a profound question, a question everyone wants to know the answer to. I'm not sure we have an answer to that. <laughs> um, guys, we really, really jumped into the deep end tonight. Thank you for your patience and your grace and your willingness to stick with me. Next week, we are going to come back and we're going to talk about the opposite number to Augustine. So we're going to talk about universalism, um, the surprising I- idea that everyone might be saved in the end. Um, we're going to look at a figure named Origen of Alexandria, who actually lived like a hundred years or so before Augustine um, in contemporary Egypt. Um, and I hope you will come back, invite friends and relatives, and I look forward to seeing you all at this time next week.